Hello and welcome to Please Watch This, where two film-loving mates with gaps in their viewing history recommend films to one another so they can once and for all answer that question, who has better taste? I'm Sam Blakely, as I always am, and I'm joined, as I mostly am, in fact, thus far, always am, by Hugh Dempsey. Hugh, how are you? Hello, Sam. Um, so, yeah, you're always joined by me so far. I mean, you're doing a podcast on the side that I don't know about. We don't need to talk about that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 nothing. It's not you. It's uh, me. Yeah, you just need that extra podcasting in your life. Is that what it is? Look, we need to keep some secrets from each other, dear. Okay. Have you had a good week, Hugh? Um, yes. Since the since it has been seven days since I last spoke to you, <laughs> it is not... Sunday today. <laughs> Next Sunday. <laughs> Damn, I shouldn't have bought that talking clock. <laughs> Yeah, so since I last spoke to you on Thursday night, because it's now Sunday, uh, yeah, everything's cool. Good. What have you been up to this weekend? Did, yeah, got right into a show called 60 Days In that you may be familiar with from the Netflix. Yeah, never heard of it. It's um, seven members of the public go into an American prison or a jail, like a holding yeah. jail, um, ostensibly to find the issues and then report back to the warden, the, the sheriff, but really for, for good reality TV. And it is really good. It's very we've we've watched all thirteen episodes in three nights, and they're forty minutes long. Uh, so, listeners, I'd rec- please watch this. Sixty days in. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you don't seem psyched about it, but it is it's good. Um, yeah, I've just I've watched a lot of reality TV over the years. You know what I mean? I don't. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the genre. To be honest, no. I mean, ever. I mean, Charlie Brooker ruined it for me with Screen Wipe. Whenever you see somebody say something, and then there's no laugh, like they say something that's just, that they're trying to be funny, there's no laughter, and it cuts to people looking bemused. I know that that's not their reaction in that moment to it. American yeah. reality TV show is on another planet in terms of that sort of that sort of engineered nonsense. This show seems to have a lot of that, but actually not as much as I was expecting. I found out there's five seasons of it. I, su- I suspect it probably gets worse as it goes on. That's my recommendation for this week. <laughs> Glad you liked it. All right, uh, see you next week, guys. You can get us on Twitter at Please Watch Pod. <laughs> yeah, Please Watch TV Pod. <laughs> <laughs> please Watch that show. Um, this week, though, we are... That's the banter thing out of the way. Uh, yeah, we are standard. watching... Uh, another film that's better than 60 Days In. We're watching 12 Angry Men. I, the host, have seen it a million times. Hugh, the co-host, has seen it for the first time this week. Um, yeah, so Hugh, you told us last week that you... or oh, three days ago. Um, that <laughs> you knew some things about it. You basically knew the, the concept and the and the ending. Uh, we'll get to your, your reactions later, but was it kind of what you expected in that sense? That, that, that was basically the plot, wasn't it? Um, well, yeah, it's it's a film that's, you know, it's, what, 62 years old this year, so it's one of those that's been in common circulation for a long time. It, there was no surprises in terms of the direction of the plot, because, you know, like we've mentioned before, those shows of the 100 greatest films are kind of ruined plots without discrimination there so i kind of knew the broad strokes of it and all that and being a fan of film i think it's one of those that you end up learning about at quite a reasonable age so yeah, i've known about I, this film I, for a good 10 15 years. 
That's good. I think there's an attitude towards all the films that I don't like, which is, well, you know, you had 60 years. It's like, yeah, I had 60 years to watch everything that's ever come out in 60 years. So it's not like, I don't like that those shows can just spoil things if they're more than three years old, because it's like, well, you had three years. Or things that, I don't know, I watch a lot of video essays on YouTube, and so often you'll see basically the most momentous final thing that happens in Avengers Endgame that I don't want to say right now because somebody listening may never have seen Avengers Endgame I think people who are listening to this now aren't going to ever want to watch it or in 15 years are going to watch it but that's not, yeah. a, that's not a risk I'm willing to take. <laughs> There's just this assumption, it's like, well, it, it's been out for three months, so why haven't you seen it yet? And then something like, uh, yeah, something like this, you know, if somebody says, well, it's it's been out 60 years, why why don't you know that yet? There's a lot of stuff. <laughs> well, I'm in that problem at the minute with the Joker. Oh, Joker, because there's no definitive mm. article, as we definitively proved last week, um, <laughs> or on Thursday, that... I'm probably not going to get, just through circumstance at the moment, I'm not going to go and see it in the cinema as much as I want to. I'm just probably not going to get around to it. Um, so I'm kind of having to try and avoid spoilers of that. And in a couple of months, that's going to be an absolute nightmare. Because like you, I yeah. watch quite a lot of video essays on YouTube. And they do, like you said, they do it all the time, don't they? Yeah, there's a meme going around. There's like a, a still from that film. I won't tell you what's in the meme. But I've seen that in many things. And I was glad I watched the film first because... That's actually quite late in the film, <laughs> a certain meme that includes Joker. So, yeah. yeah, with all that in mind, on that note, listener, if you haven't seen 12 Angry Men, if you don't know how it ends, we are going to spoil it right from the start of our show. Spoiler alert! Whoa, spoiler alert! Whoa. We need to make a standardised spoiler alert jingle, don't we? Um, well, if we both go spoiler alert simultaneously and then make siren noises, I'll cut it out now of the pod and then we'll just use this one from now so on so you're going to sample it okay alright yep. so on three so go three two one go and then that okay okay three two ready? one go spoiler, spoiler alert, alert. <laughs> this right, is a drill nice. this is not a drill <laughs> <laughs> cut that right there I think that's yep. banged it first time all in the mic yep. I think so I think I think people are going to love that little bit in their ears if it's uh, early in the morning or when they're driving on. <laughs> Especially when they're driving. Hopefully they've got it turned up really loud. That's the hope. That's always the that's, hope. That's, that's, you know, because traffic accidents are our preference. <laughs> so um, let's, let's get into this film. I'm going to... What I'm is... Gonna before you get into well, it, Sam. Yeah. yeah. What is the plot of What's the plot? Room? Yeah. So we get about 30 seconds in a courtroom. It's a boy on trial for murder. And then basically the entire film is in the jury room. 12 people. And it seems like an open and shut case. They take a quick vote at first. Eleven of them say he's guilty. One man says not guilty. But he's not really sure. His whole job is to try to cast reasonable doubt and to not be sure about it. And, uh, spoiler alert again, he ends up changing the minds of everybody there, including an old racist, including somebody who's got a vendetta against his own son and sees the defendant as his own son. So that is the plot. Very, very straightforward plot. Yeah, so the, it's more about the journey than the destination, I would say, of this film. It's about how um, juror number eight, Henry Fonda's character, convinces the rest of the jury to vote. Yes, absolutely. And, and that is, that's why it's used in a lot of um, educational settings as well. So... I'm going to get right into it, if that's all right with yeah. you, in terms of why I love this film. Yeah, why do you, why do you love this film? Tell me now. <laughs> I love this film because it's just one of the smartest and most well-made 
films, especially that it comes from a play. I really like films that come from plays, and it's all about the talky, the talk talk, you know. And it's it, this is the example I cite all the time whenever I'm trying to understand or try to explain to somebody why big action, you know, explosiony things aren't effective. Uh, to the idea that somebody can say something that calls back to what somebody said earlier, like 40 minutes earlier, that has much more impact than somebody, you know, driving out of a big tower into a helicopter that explodes and smashes into water and blah, 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 because that has no... I'm not invested. And I think what this film does well is makes you invest into this discussion. And the thing that I really love about it is that it's very timeless and very... um, accessible to all so i mentioned last week that i show this film to my students and i have done now for seven years and over that time i must have shown it to i don't know let's say 500 people and i've never had anybody dislike it and some of the you charge them every time because every time i'm making it like you're running your own yeah you're on cinema there (laughs) and um and I'll, I always downplay it. The lesson before we start, or the start of the lesson, I say, we're going to watch a film now. It's 1957. It's black and white. It's just a bunch of men talking, but you're going to love it. And um, they go, oh, <laughs> why? And I, sometimes, especially at my old school, I'm showing it to people who would never think to watch a black and white film uh, and really would not care for it at all. They're very bored as the people are, as the jurors are filing into the jury room. And I just see them all sort of lean closer and closer to the screen and there's a few revelations in this film there's juror number eight pulls out a flick knife that another juror said you know is so rare that it can't have been uh it can't be found by anybody else and they they gasp and there's um there's moments where one character might put another character down that, that finally gets their comeuppance and they laugh and it's a really great feeling when somebody you you know when you, you sit down and you get somebody to watch something and you see them and you hear them reacting to it it's a really beautiful feeling and it happens every single time i show this film um so that really convinces me that it it must have something enduring yeah okay um i've got more to say yeah well we'll <laughs> yeah we'll get into that why would you recommend the film to me then so something that's come up a few times in the previous recommendations we've made to each other really is that we know that we like thoughtful films and films that make us think and I think that is something that you would like about it Uh, it's got so much in terms of psychology and in terms of influence and persuasion and negotiation and the legal system and I think you are somebody that would appreciate those things Um, the procedural (laughs) the procedural yeah Yeah, well that's it it's a procedure it's a sort of it's not a whodunit it's a did he do it um, and there is a, again there's a sort of universal appeal to those things it's why spies and mystery novels tend to sell more than most others um, and it's it's just so well researched you know I find myself even 60 odd years on bringing up a concept in class or reading about something and being able to apply it back to this film yeah. a few years ago I used to teach when I was training I taught uh, uh, like a criminal um, justice system module to psychology and they were, we used that this film again back then. Uh, now, now I teach it in terms of social influence. <coughs> Excuse me. Now I teach it in terms of social influence, but back then I would I could teach it as this is what lawyers and jurors or you know even defendants might be watching to really understand the the dynamics of of how these things work, what reasonable yeah. doubt is, and how that works in the in the way that you could have someone like O.J. Simpson sort of universally seen as being guilty not 
committed in a criminal uh, jury, bec- uh, criminal case, because there's some reasonable doubt, but then being found guilty in a civil case because they have to just be on the balance of probabilities. He's most is likely to have done it, and it's a really good exploration of um, reasonable doubt. I think. Yeah, and that's like, especially in murder trials, that is something that the law has to prove is that it has to be on reasonable doubt, doesn't it? And this film is. Uh, it's the heart it's you know it's the heart of the film isn't it really is can you prove something beyond reasonable doubt yeah and i mean the the judge sounds so bored when he's giving them their instructions he's convinced it's just an open and shut case they're all so confident and um and you you get surprised yourself in starting to doubt uh, his guilt or at least understanding the reasonable doubt because it is so astronomically unlikely that somebody else killed his father other than him but they can't prove that he did it, so he uh, he has to go through. Can I ask, you know, when you do teach it at your school, well, in previous schools, do you do you get people, well, it's hard to, to say, but I mean, I've personally, maybe if it was me, what I would do is I would ask them to listen to the first few minutes of the film, then get them to vote if, they, if he's guilty or not guilty, and then show them the rest of the film and then get them to obviously vote at the end. I never do. I never do. And I think there's two reasons. Firstly, because it's really annoying when a teacher pauses a video to talk (laughs) when you're just getting into it. And another reason is because it doesn't give you all of the information to have any reasonable doubt. There's no question in your mind that he is guilty um, until you hear the specifics of the story. So I think if he laid out his story first... Yeah, I might ask them, but I think think the way that the film works isn't like that because actually a a whodunit... um, gives or a good who done it should give you all the information and then you as a viewer should very unlikely but should be able to work out in this case it's not traditionally like that uh, and it is just more of a yeah, it's more, reveal yeah it's more it's also more about the characters who are having to come to this decision and like you said yeah. what influences them and yeah like how peer pressure kind of works on people and Peer pressure, and then on the flip side, minority influence. So we teach it as minority influence because a minority needs to be consistent, as Henry Fonda is. They need to be committed. He's willing to make sacrifices and, and bargain. They need to be flexible as well, and, and that's the inflexibility of juror number three, who's really got a vendetta, and that's why he's doing it against the juror number eight, who is very flexible in, in his manner, in his ability to, to negotiate. Yeah. Okay. Um, in terms of what you wouldn't like about it, I genuinely... Didn't couldn't think of anything to write down other than maybe it's not a whodunit where you get all the information first and then you can work it out for yourself. Really, it is it is pushing you uh, down one way? It's not a it's not a particularly a mystery thriller type thing. But I really can't think of any reason why you would dislike it. Should we find out? Yeah, let's find out. Okay, after the break, we're going to hear whether or not Hugh likes uh, one of the ten best films of all time, Twelve Angry Men. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Please Watch This. We're going to find out what Hugh thinks of the 1957 classic 12 Angry Men. Hugh, what did you think? Yes, yeah, so 12 Angry Men's a good film, isn't it? I mean, there's there's no getting away from it that it's a well-made film that has a lot of, you know, it has a lot to say for itself. It's, it's smart cinema, uh, which, you know, maybe we don't always think something old being smart. I think it's a common kind of misconception that we have. Um, so yeah, so it's really great 
in that respect. Um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting that it's it, very much a study about, like you said, about a minority opinion and that minority opinion um, being correct and how the f how the film presents that uh, to the audience. And like you said, it's not it isn't a who done it. It's a well, could did they possibly do it? <laughs> what did you describe it as before? Uh, okay <laughs> is it uh, um, yeah did, did he do, do it? it all yeah and that's I find that really interesting so you were that's good so you weren't put off by the fact that it wasn't like a mystery for the viewer to solve um a little bit at first I'm not gonna lie obviously we watch a lot of films and media where it's a whodunit and this isn't a whodunit um so you were kind of like sat there going right so i know the premise i know that this guy is going to convince the rest of these jurors that the the i i mean when i initially went into it i thought oh um he's correct and it is going to be a classic who done it and they're going to be like well he can't have done it or the person didn't do it i didn't know any of the particular details so i didn't know that it was a young i mean he's a child essentially isn't he? he's 18 years old uh, i didn't know it was a young he's a very man. young looking 18 as well isn't he in the in the court yeah, and he's only five foot seven as well, so he's not tall. You know, he doesn't look, but he doesn't. He doesn't look like a grown up. So, but they, you know, they they very much frame it that there's a lot of prejudice towards people from his background. So, um, I didn't know any of the details of that. So I didn't really, I didn't know that it was about a young man killing his father, and you know that he was from a deprived economic background. I just knew that it was one guy convincing the rest that they were wrong. So I thought it was like, oh well, he convinced him that he didn't commit the murder rather than it being about reasonable doubt. Yeah, oh, that's good. That's good. So I'm glad, I'm glad there were some things in, in surprise because it's uh, it'd be easy as well to hear this advertised as kind of like a killer mockingbird, you know, a man in a white suit is defending a, somebody from an ethnic minority, essentially. Um, so I'm glad that that wasn't part of what you what you expected of the film, really. Yeah, I mean, I, it, I, I realised it quite quickly within a good 10, 15 minutes I know it's only an yeah. hour and a half, but yeah, I knew I was never—you were never going to get because it was—it was trying to, it was trying to be realistic. It was trying to say, this is what would happen. They would get given the evidence, and then they have to decide. They don't know for certain whether this young man killed his father or not. They just know that this yeah. is the evidence they've been presented with. We don't, as an audience, we don't know if the man committed murder, the young man committed murder or not. We just know that this—that this jury decides there's enough reasonable doubt to not commit for him not to have committed the crime it's so unusual isn't it to not have an omniscient um ca camera i suppose or an omniscient viewpoint or at least a an omni, omni omnipresent at least so at least we we can see the murder like in colombo or something like that and then it's revealed to us and it's just the real life uh scenario I think obviously like you said it comes from a play i think there's an there's an ease sometimes with films like this to to show what happened, you know, what actually did happen and, you know, to play with this narrative structure to be like, they'll show you, you know, well, this is definitely what happened and you'll see the young man stabbed down on the, you know, on his father and you'll see him running out. You'll see yeah, the old some, man going some to the like door. reenactments. <laughs> yeah. And then the as the film develops and the story changes or what, or what the jury believe is the story will change and then they'll show different things happening. And, you know, that's a well maybe not in legal dramas but it's a well-worn narrative trope where people's 
recollections or uh, understandings of events changes and the the film sees that way this is just like nope you've just got to this is the this is the this is what they have this is what you've got <laughs> exactly you're working as one of the jurors and i think that's one of the great things about this film is how kind of claustrophobic it is it's almost real time which is a brilliant thing because you, there's no relief of jumping forwards in time really um similar i didn't think i'd bring this film up actually today i've mentioned it in the previous episode the film buried with ryan reynolds where he's buried yeah. alive there's no it's not intercut with um sort of flashbacks to his family life or anything you're just in that coffin with him the entire time and it, it really does something to you where you keep that claustrophobia you're not allowed out of the room you're not allowed out of the confines of that room you're just in there with them sweating away on the hottest day of the year in new york and i think that is great that it's not intercut with those things that would be too stylized i think yeah you couldn't so really do that in a play without it ruining ruining the the uh the tension that's been built yeah so i put so my notes here i just put you know what i liked i put um you know the tension in this film is great you know you you, you don't know the uh, you know i like i said i didn't i knew that they were all going to vote with um, Henry Fonda's character, um, but I didn't know how it was going to, you know, how it was going to break down. So when he pulls out the knife and he throws it on the table, I mean, FYI, criminal damage by both parties there on that table. <laughs> Just you know, if you have, you know, if you haven't seen this, I don't know why this film. I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. But that, but yeah, the scene where um, juror number three, I think it is, or four, and he gets the knife evidence and stabs it into the table, and then Henry Fonda pulls out an, an exact same manufactured knife and stabs it in the table next to him, proving his point that these knives aren't as rare as the um, the shopkeeper made them out to be. At the cost of the taxpayer. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that table's yeah. <laughs> yeah, shocking form. But, Absolutely you know, all joking aside, yeah, that's, um, that's a really interesting... Um, What's really interesting in this film. So I said that the tension builds up and builds up, and yeah, I like that. I mean, there's, um, it's a, there's, a, there's an interesting thing here where um, you know plays made into films and and what you do differently each time. So some, have you, you've seen the History Boys, haven't you? I've seen the film, yeah, yeah, um, and, and I've not seen the play either, but I've seen the film ten times, and I think the okay. best parts of those of that film is the bits that are clearly from a stage play you yeah. know, where it's just, it's just back and forth between the characters, sometimes in French, sometimes playing out films from the 1950s. And, um, the, those are the best bits. There's not necessarily the weaker bits, but the bits that don't really stick in my head are those that are out and about and around, you know, it really comes down to, it really comes down to the, the dialogue in a film like that. And this film is the same. Some of the great things that Sidney Lumet did to make it cinematic or at least to, to make use of the fact that these this has been filmed with cameras is the the way that the sort of cameras are used when it gets very stressful there's so many close-ups on the different characters very claustrophobic and often they were filmed sometimes days or weeks apart from the rest of the conversation to keep the lighting uh yeah i read i read about excuse me i read about that after um after I watched the film. And I think that shows the craft of the director is that you can't tell that those two shots are filmed weeks or months apart. And that's a credit to the cast and the director for really knowing their material. Yeah. And understanding, uh, understanding how shots change the meaning of a, of a, 
of the shot, <laughs> you know, understanding how the camera angle changes things and the height, are we above the character, are we below the character in terms of power dynamics and that when a character stands up, what that does. It's quite interesting, actually, when they start to really get into the debate, each character in turn, when it's their turn to speak, they'll stand up and walk around. And that's almost like, let's make this a little bit more cinematic. So it's not just people sat at a table. They'll stand up. It kind of makes you uneasy when there's lots of people standing up and walking around and making their argument and they're sort of pitching to the table. Yeah. Um, I li- like you said, I like that aspect that it is shot kind of almost in real time as well. Uh, along with that, that it's, you know, that you see the, 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 the fluidity of the discussion and its ebbs and flows. I like, I really enjoy that. And, um, There's a few things that are of the time where it'll, it'll practically, I think it's when Henry Fonda's character is waiting for the the second ballot without him when he's making that compromise. The music almost is going, du-du-du-du, and there's a close-up yeah. on his face. It's a bit more arty than that, but that feels a bit more like the 1950s. But it is it's, a a bit, it's very melodramatic, isn't it? It's melodramatic, yeah, absolutely. And and it is, it is amazing how how timeless it is and, and how this film you could show in another 50 years and it won't have aged, I assume. Yeah. Um, yeah, certain aspects of this film are going to age amazingly well because you'll they'll always you know not always you know but there's the likelihood of there being trial by jury and you know that kind of legal system being enforced for another 100 years 200 years 300 years is it's not something that's going away anytime soon probably not and i was really encouraged by the um the views in the film because when jury number uh 10 does go on a bit of a kind of racist <laughs> rant yeah. I've, I've labelled him here on my notes because I had to write down who everyone was uh, Ed Begley uh, brackets racist old man yes exactly <laughs> racist old man Ed, Ed Begley uh, he he's looked down on by everybody else he goes into this racist, racist rant which is basically you know they come over here and, and they're, it's born in them and all that stuff and then everyone shuns him and I was like oh my god this is 1957 America a bunch of white men or a bunch of men I'm so I think impressed. that I'm impressed yeah. at the... So I think yeah. this is where maybe... So the, so you say you like the fact that you can tell it's from a play. What I really like about this film is that it is adapted from a play. And like you said, that it's about dialogue, it's about arguments, about human interaction and how that would play out in the dynamics of a group. Um, there is some aspects of it that are very you know, are a bit too play-like and that's one of them when they all stand up and turn, you know, they turn <laughs> They've got to visually back. walk to their corners and turn their back. Yeah, on. I found that a bit jarring because in that situation, that's not going to happen because they haven't come to a decision yet. So they're all going to have to sit back and go back to the table and he makes a point of getting up and does he, he, um, he goes and sits at another table, doesn't he? Is he reading something or writing something? What is he what, doing? The, the racist old man. Yeah, because he doesn't yeah, he say sat just at the sort table. Of retires himself to uh, to another table. I think. He, yeah. I think it is. Yeah, I, I see your point there. It feels again kind of almost melodramatic, but it's as soon as the first person, I think, during number five, as soon as he gets up and leaves the table, that's him. That's almost like his protest. He's going. I'm not. I'm not sitting for this anymore. And then that almost becomes the precedent of how you respond to this and how you shun him. But you're right. A yeah. lot of people would just look down and not engage with them. I think Jury number seven does something similar, kind of stays sat in his seat but doesn't really move. Yeah, and he himself says the odd little racist thing as well towards Jury number 11, you know, they're coming over here teaching us our language. He's got a bit of that in him. Yeah, there's... Um, so, as as powerful as a scene as that is, I, do, I always find those scenes 
bit cringy, especially in films that try and ground themselves in, you know, reality. And I think maybe that's just, like you said, more about the the the, the context and with which the film was made as that, well, to make powerful points, there has to be, you know, real um, emphasis of action. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think uh, tied in with that, w- one thing that works so well with, with the way that this is written and the way it's shot and presumably the way it worked as a play as well is the ebbs and flows. You notice that after every big moment, after every big revelation, um, a little smart put down or something like that, there's a, there's a lull. You know, yeah. it's uh, when juror number three the the angry man um threatens to kill juror number eight and he says you don't really mean you'll kill me do you it's silent for a bit they all retire to go and have some more water and cool down and have their little side chats um or you know he'll pull out the knife and they shock and then then the next thing you know they're they're going and they're doing something else and it's a really good like it's not it's not it doesn't build 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 to a huge crescendo it's small crescendo small crescendo to then a big revel- a big final resolution and I think it's so masterfully done and it's so masterfully done that I sometimes get worried in those lulls that my students are going to get bored but actually I know it's th- the way that they get back into it and they go okay another thing let's deal with the, the knife let's deal with the, the cinema his alibi and then they mm. play it again and it's just this wonderful <laughs> ebb and flow Here's a question for you about that, just on the interest. How often do you have to kind of rein in the kids wanting to talk about the uh, the film aspect of the film and you going, no, no, we're discussing, you know, the topic at hand? (laughs) No, I I really, I try to encourage the the chatting about how good the film is, but... um... Normally, there's a sort of stunt. There's a sort of silence. Yeah, that Ofsted encourages not to talk about the subject they're on about. Just (laughs) I mean, I get a worksheet out and I. (laughs) <laughs> tell them to complete it in silence that's how I normally finish it good <laughs> yeah yeah so my other question I have about this film and uh, something you might be uh, well you know the answer but there isn't 12 angry men I mean at best there's maybe three there's... <laughs> at various times they get a bit annoyed yeah but none of them are... I, 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 the only thing that actually the thing that lets this it's one of those where the title's great, but I don't think it actually fits the film. <laughs> <laughs> so, one incensed man, one really placid man, and a bunch of people who change emotions on a dime. Yeah. It's less snappy, but more real. Yeah. So, Jura 12, Robert Webber, and I've I've called him Childish Ad Executive here. Um, <laughs> I don't think he That's was in the same film as everybody else was in. <laughs> right. Because... He's just, he is very, he doesn't, he's not taking the situation seriously. And he's like, oh, when I'm nervous, I doodle. And it's like, well, how could you have been talking, listening, after you've just doodled a massive, like, advert on your paper? <laughs> and that's, that's max a bit of overproduction of a film, which this film clearly has gone for a minimalist aesthetic, you know. And, uh, yeah, there's little hints there that there's actually a bit of thought behind this film, if that makes sense. So, yeah. <laughs> there's a bit of... Um... He does seem different to the others, but they're all, I quite like how vaguely different they all are, and sometimes that comes down to the job they have. Yeah, and, uh, and it affects their debating as well. You know, it affects Jerry Number Seven's flip, flap, flip, flap approach to uh, to things. Yeah, yeah, I do like that. They they're all very different. They're actually they're they're real people, aren't they? Um, 
Yeah, they're all working men, and yeah. I like how that comes up in the in the lulls actually. So during number one, the foreman, when he's talking about you know how uh, coaches little league, and the ad exec, of course, that's that's a lull where they're talking about that, and people will just bring come into things during number two and the three, the angry man and the milk sop. Um, they're sort of, you know, he's he's asking him how he does, and at the very start, actually, he's saying, "What an interesting case. What was interesting about it? you know." bored to tears you kind of really get to they seem they can be quite boring those those minutes but they seem to really delve into those characters even further and they that comes out later as well yeah i don't know how i felt about them again like i said it, it seemed like a very theatric it was a very theatrical like stage play device where you you want to convey who these people are to the audience so how do you convey that you have them talk about their occupation and the families and i don't think in that situation you would necessarily get that information i don't think the jurors maybe would i think you would because really when if you're meeting a talking to a stranger what they do is one of the first three or four things you ask them isn't it really True, and it and it is a good way of finding out. So that you know, during number seven, he's a salesman. You know, tricks and jokes, and laughs. That's his style, and that's his style in this debate as well, isn't it? I mean, yeah, his point that he makes when he goes, oh, when he's on about, you know, it's he's saying about how people uh, have a way of saying things. I think he says, and he's like, he tells that I can't remember the joke. But he tells like a joke, doesn't he? that somebody had said before that makes sense that's a very <laughs> that does genuinely like yeah that makes sense in that context that he would try and discuss how he's looking at this case um through that sort of prism of his occupation because of these the encounters he would have had so i think that's great um i think there's some weird little i mean look like i said i think this film overall you know is a great film you know i can see why it's so highly rated because the themes of the film are you know about how we decide by trial on a man's life you know that's ultimately what this film's about you know um so yeah so like the little things like that you kind of forgive it that it's kind of you know it's having to get it's trying to find its best way to get into the characters as much as possible did you buy that angry dad the reason he wanted to send this kid down was because he was angry at his own child i I did, in a sense, more that that had kind of clouded his judgment towards young people and their relationship with their fathers. It's probably a, it's probably a bit, maybe not on the nose, but it's quite. Um, I don't even know if ham-fisted is the right word. It's a, it's a bit much, but he needed some, he needed some motivation that wasn't just racism. Yeah. Or, you know, he he he's also he's basically playing like a, like a, Brexit guy <laughs> you know he's, he's a bit gammony he's a bit kind of like he's not very thoughtful and he's not very uh compassionate or sympathetic stereotypical his, brexit person there just yeah you know that's that's rather that's the image that you that, that we're led to believe anyway yeah and um and he yeah and that's how he debates he doesn't see reason he just shouts and tries to be louder he's sort of fox news uh kind of guy and yeah. i can see how that would cloud his judgment are you going yeah. to say that it was a bit well, much, I was. I think it's a little bit much, but I must admit, I was trying to work out who would be the because it kind of presents it as in they kind of fall a bit like dominoes one by one, more or less, and changing their opinion. So after I realised that was kind of the format, I was trying to figure out who'd be the last one to fold, and I actually thought it'd be no, no, I thought it was going to be the racist old man or maybe <laughs> the uh, the the stockbroker. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the second to last. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I must admit, I am kind of just pulling 
it apart now, you know, dissecting it rather than, you know, than just... Uh, Revel in its glory. Yeah, because there is so much to appreciate about this film. I think it's because it is so good. I'm kind of... I always... When I see something I really like and I think it's really amazing, I tend to nitpick with it more because I can... I can see its brilliance, and then you question. I find I question it more because is it because it's like it's three things away from perfection as opposed to twenty, and it's like where do you start if there's twenty yeah. things? You kind of let things slide because there's other more glaring issues. With this one, there's not many glaring issues. Yeah, and then you just and then you start thinking of little things. So I think another little thing that I had with it was I. The stockbroker makes a fair point when he's like, oh, well, what about the witness? And she said she saw him do it, even though it was through the um, the train and all that. That's that's fair point. I can see his rationale in that. But I don't think him and the nice old man, I don't think they would have voted guilty to start with. I think they but that's have... the thing. No, he's, he's, he's the sort of scientific think, thinker. And the evidence is all there, isn't it, for guilty? It's yeah, but really when if he's so, but out. if, but for me, if he's such a rational thinker, then he would have maybe rationalised some other parts of this that didn't make sense. And I think he comes, across, he's almost like here's a smart, intelligent person, and then he's proven to be quite stupid. And I think there you go. That's again, this is where I'm nitpicking, you know, because <laughs> the character's so not, well. But he's written. not stupid. He's not stupid. He he follows the evidence, and then when the evidence falls apart, he doesn't follow it anymore. And and that's the. But, the most scientific way of doing it. Whereas but Henry he have, really but if he was from a... but if he was smart enough, wouldn't he have worked out some of this himself rather than just blindly following? I the mean, it, but it took a lot, and it took a lot of input from lots of different people. So, yeah, maybe. But as they said, you know, the defense lawyer was so bad at bringing out things yeah. um, that it, it made more sense. And he, really, the smartness doesn't come from the decision he made; it comes from his approach. When people start getting to these, you know, personal arguments he doesn't indulge in that he follows the evidence and then let's say when when it crumbles one by one he he says oh yeah that's fine he doesn't have a an agenda he doesn't you know he's not swayed by personal feelings he, he's he's the most scientific of them all yeah yeah Henry definitely Fonda isn't the most scientific he's logical and so on but actually it's compassion that that originally gives him the not guilty yeah i, I was i was working at trying to work out Fonda's um, like motivation and it it was just that he like you said he almost thinks well if everyone else thinks he's guilty then I'm going to say he's not guilty and we'll, we'll we'll work it out we'll we'll give him the benefit of the doubt you know we'll give him the reasonable doubt and then it comes out here's a question do you think the the, the, the young man in the film committed the murder almost and certainly <laughs> you think he did almost certainly yeah there's yeah. a reasonable doubt in my mind and that's the point yeah, that's it. You'd be, yeah. be tried in a civil case. I assume you think so as well. I don't know. I honestly don't know because that's the way the point, it's, isn't it? Yeah, because the way the film's conveyed to you, you don't know. I, that's why I think. Well, how would have I have voted at the start, and how would I have voted at the end? Would I have? Obviously, like you said, as an audience, we don't get to see what the uh, what the trial was like. We only get it secondhand through the characters there. So. Yeah. Well, in in the words of the great Dwight K. Schrute, better a thousand man uh, go to pr- <laughs> better a thousand innocent men go to prison than one guilty man walks free. <laughs> and I think that's probably how some people would view this. You know, the jury number seven. Oh no, sorry, jury number uh, eight, six. <laughs> jury number six, the guy who's trying to defend the old guy. He um he you know he says to jury number eight, Henry Fonda, he says, you know, 
I'm not one for supposing, but here's one for you. What if you all talk us out of it? And the kid really did knife his father. Mm. And uh, and he has a good point, but I think at the same time, if there's a reasonable doubt, it is better that a guilty man walks free than an innocent man goes to, well, kill, gets killed in this case. Yeah, I also think this is a peculiar, for us anyway in Britain, it's a very peculiar American problem, because for us here in this country, we would be, well, is he going to get 20, 25 years in prison? Is he going to get a life sentence? We don't have that old balance of, well, this his freedom is going to be curtailed and his life will effectively be over as it was before, but we don't have the burden of actual using the criminal justice system to be a sadist as, uh, was it jury number four? No, jury number three, isn't it? Yeah. He's... Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the biggest, I think the best argument against the death penalty is it's very final. <laughs> you can't really, there's no take backs on that. Yeah. Yeah, and it is a heavy responsibility. That's why I was a bit peculiar that some of the characters were so f- flippant about his guilt. And because, like you said, the uh, soapy baseball man, as I've named him, um, <laughs> he's just like, I just want to get out of here. It's like, yeah, surely you must have more thoughts about that. Um, yeah, well, he's not I, soapy. I mean, he made 27 grand selling marmalade last year, so. He's just, Sorry, uh, he's not soap, he's is it? It's marmalade. Who's uh, soap? It's the ad guy who's uh, making an advert for soap. Ah, I've mixed the two together. Marmalade. I've just given you. That. Did you catch just then how much how much he made from marmalade? Um. Yes. <laughs> is this going to be on the quiz? <laughs> it wasn't, but oh. I just said it. And there, it 20, there is one of my say... quiz questions that's been ruined, so I might replace it. Did you say 27 grand? Damn it. <laughs> I'll have to yeah. think of another one. Yeah, one of the questions was going to be about what's Jury number 12's job, so I need to think of a new one. That was just me working out <laughs> a new question for you. Oh, brilliant. Well, <laughs> there's a little insight to how this film podcast works and our listeners. Absolutely. Um, I think we should get into favourite lines and scenes, what do you reckon? Yeah, so uh, the onus is on me to give you... So I've put down my favourite scene for this film is when Jury number 11... Uh, confronts Henry Fonda and says that he will ki- that he'll kill him. He's like, "I'll kill you." And um, Henry Fonda. Mean. Yeah, sorry. Have I put ten? Ten. Oh, that's <laughs> racist, old man. Sorry. Yeah. Angry, angry dad. When angry dad <laughs> says to uh, Henry Fonda, "I'm going to kill you," and basically Henry Fonda goes, "You didn't mean that." Um, yeah, you don't really mean you'll kill me, do you? Yeah, and that's that's the that's the effective end of the film. Like, at that point. You know that the kid. Obviously, I knew he was going to be proven not guilty, but yeah, at that point, he's the the spontaneity of uh, an angry person who would have some similar characteristics. I think here's me transposing my own views onto this character based on what they have said. But yeah, I think maybe that he would uh, perhaps say those things and not really mean them. Well, exactly. Um, I mean, that's that's the moment when my students go, oh, snap, <laughs> or whatever young people say nowadays. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's so smart because you just think in that moment, you just think in that moment he's been a threat. And actually, no, it's a callback. And it's, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, my gosh. What a revelation. Yeah. And I think I've got that as my favorite line. You don't really mean you, you'll kill me, do you? My second favorite line was also during number three basically get, condemning his side, which was, he was an old man, half the time he was confused, how could he be positive about anything? And then you go, and then there's a great close-up where he's going, oh yeah. shit, <laughs> I've just yeah, trashed yeah. our main witness. <laughs> our second main witness, that's great. Yeah. I must admit though, like, 
there is there is some bits in this film where it's like you know there's some nice coincidence where Henry Fonda's like well actually I used to live next to the uh, the train lines and I you know you can well, barely I think hear living anything in, living in New York most people will have especially low income will have lived near the L tracks yeah I, I mean but I'm not I saying mean, it's impossible it's just it's, yeah, they it's had con- to, there is some plot conveniences there in is this convenience film. yeah and people noticing the the uh, glasses marks on her nose and during number three next to a really good point there what what about what if there were sunglasses what if she's farsighted yeah, wait, yeah well, that was what I was thinking was the they just go yeah, no, what there's a reasonable far-sighted. doubt yeah and during number four just says her eyesight is in question though uh, which is brilliant but I think I would have questioned it personally by the fact that she saw it through the train car and that for me is a bit a bit yeah I think if if I was a if I was genuinely a juror in that situation I'd be like yeah you might have seen through the train and I'm not saying the windows aren't big enough to see it but something causing motion blur in front of your eyes to see an act um I would have been a bit suspicious especially but over I said, a span you know, of they, they, they proved it in what? court half a dozen ways you know the, the lights were off it was the it was the last last service and they they proved you can see through it um, I know, but, but it's yeah. that motion blur nature of it, and a good what twenty, thirty, forty foot between the buildings and the mm-hmm. yeah, even you know, even with it just a, a road between them, I still think, and a train track, I'm still thinking she didn't see it properly. Even this if he did, the do it. this film as well. I mean, there's really most of the best evidence in terms of questioning eyewitnesses only started in the 1970s, really, in terms of what witnesses can and can't remember. There's a, a brilliant um, research called Elizabeth Loftus who's done loads of research into that, like, the questions that you ask a witness can affect what they saw. Just to a quick digression here, there's um, they show, showed a car crash to people, a video of a car crash, mm. and then they asked them about how fast were the cars going when they hit each other. But different groups saw different verbs, so hit, smashed, bumped, collided, and uh, uh, contacted. And they found that there was like 10 miles an hour difference on average between smashed and uh, contacted. Mm. So by hearing that smashed, and then if you asked them a week later, did you see the broken glass? If they were asked how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other, they're so much more likely to say yes, they saw broken glass, even if there wasn't any. And there's this, just this, you know, decades of experiments. But really, 1957 is a very early time, or early 50s is a really early time to have all this insight. It's amazing. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm not. You're more of an expert on this kind of area of study than I am. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know some. But yeah, I'm just saying it's 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 well ahead. It's like if you made this play now, it this was this would probably be what you'd do, you know, yeah. sixty years later, and and these are the things that you would hit upon, and it, I just it blows my mind, and um, you know, so from a writing perspective, that's great. Sydney, we met is somebody who I want to watch more films of. He, I saw this, which was his first feature film, unbelievable. I know. I mean, to get to, like imagine making this as your first film. Like your first right, proper right. I'm just retiring film. now. Like that's it. You would. You would. <laughs> how he could he made any money? This? He could have done that. <laughs> yeah, did. it's crazy that he didn't make money. This film. I can't believe it. Um, I was reading it's a such an old a, tale. That, an it? extract that's from. Yeah, I was reading an extract from Henry Fonda, and he said that the studio didn't um, advertise it properly. They didn't re-release it when it got nominated for the Oscars, which is crazy. Um, in yeah, today's... three Oscar. I, I do <laughs> wonder if this film. <laughs> I think. If this film was released uh, now, it would it would be nominated. I don't know if it'd win, but it would definitely be nominated, and it'd make a shed ton of money. 
It's a real Oscar bit, isn't it? For that yeah. like clever, accessible, smart sort of thing about about yeah. about big issues and so on. Yeah, really effective. I think for me, as I said, my favourite line was probably "You don't really mean you'll kill me," or "He was an old man." I think my favourite scene is either Juror Eight, Girding, Juror Three, or I really like the interrogation of Juror Number Four about the movies and his memory, just because that little bead of sweat. Because <laughs> because earlier in the film, I don't know. I don't like the bead of sweat. Oh, but Jerry Five earlier in the film said, "Excuse me, don't you sweat?" It takes it <laughs> takes away no. from the actual drama of the scene. It makes it melodramatic. That oh, now he's bit, sweating. But, but it's it's, like, it's yeah, another callback. On. It's just like it's just this great film of circles and callbacks and twists and revelations. Yeah, I think if I was, I think nowadays, I think they'd take that out of this film that he sweats like it, is it a or bit having too on the nose? Yeah, it is too on the nose for me because it's all, it's one bead of sweat as well. <laughs> it's like a perfect streak down his forehead. Somebody with a pipette above him. Yeah. <laughs> that was it, just trip that. Yeah. yeah, I do like the aspect that they set it on a really warm day and how that affects the mood of the characters and how they, you know, there's a few of them clearly are suffering with it and it's actually a problem. Um, yeah. And that's affecting their decision making. Like that's, I always love stuff like that where it's like they're putting it in a, again, I keep harking on about this, but a real context. My favourite, uh, my favourite line is, "Who tells you that you have the right like this to play with a man's life? Don't you care?" Um, when the European watchmaker has a go at uh, Marmalade Man for um, <laughs> wanting to go for changing his decision and not having a, a having a reasonable reason for why he's done that, um, that's brilliant because it's yeah. It just, it just is, isn't it? <laughs> I, I really like his Yogi Bear. Duh, 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 I just, uh, duh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, boo-boo, we got to get some marmalade. <laughs> he really is that character coming to life. And the Jury's European Watchmaker pack. is a really fascinating character. When when um, oh, when Jura number 10, the angry old man, the racist old man, when he says, oh, uh, pardon me, excuse me, what, you know, where are all these manners? What, what is it? Why are you so polite? The same reason you're not. It's the way I was brought up. Yeah, his put-downs are withering, aren't they? They're great. That's yeah. so good. I think that speaks to the talent of uh, Reginald Rose, the screenwriter of this mm. uh, particular film. Good I think. Reg. Yeah, to make to write a, you know, you could spend a hundred years trying to write a play, and you'd never write one as th- or a film as good as this. Well, speak for yourself. Yeah, I, I do. A, I think I'm an unfound talent. Diamond what you have rough. a. Yeah, but I don't think you've got a hundred years. <laughs> but give me a hundred years then <laughs> to write um, to try. I'll have a word I'll, with God next time I speak to him. I'll just transcribe it. I've seen this film so many times. I'll just transcribe it from memory. Yeah, just that. wait till you're like. So 80. I will have written a play as good as this. Just wait till you're like in your eighties, and then yeah, just, just tweak it slightly and see who notices. <laughs> I mean, it's happened on, on before. The of like, yeah. So when I'm eighty, I'll, that, this film will be a hundred, hundred and ten years old. This really blew my mind. Jury number nine, the older man, he was born in eighteen eighty four. Like he was, you know, his mum will remember Abraham Lincoln. Do you know what I mean? Like his mum will have will have lived under Abraham Lincoln's presidency. His mum will have remembered slavery. Never, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And my brother, hello, Joe Blakely again, shout out to you, uh, sent me a lot all of All right, clips. Sam, we get it. You have family. <laughs> <laughs> hello yeah, to all a... my family. Uh, hello, my mum. Hello, my sister. Hello, my brother. Are hello, my dad. Hello, my cousin. Hello, my other cousin. Hello, my third cousin. Sorry, I'm just saying hello to family. About 5% of our listens are in Ireland. So yeah. Maybe that's what it is. 
I, I would name them, but I, th- I think they want to keep their anonymity. <laughs> oh, they don't want to be associated with this. Um, anyway, so my brother's often sending me videos of um, like early TV interviews from like the fifties yeah. with people who were in the eighties in their eighties or really old footage from say the nineteen twenties of people who were in their eighties, and so they were born, you know. Best part of 200 years ago, 150, 180 years ago, and it really just blows my mind. Well, I think the that, last you know. civil American Civil War veteran died in, like, the 1930s. Crikey. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, look look at our own history um, in this country. The last World War One veteran died in 2013, a year before the conflict started. So, and they, they, in fact, fun fact, they therefore outlasted every member of the cast in this film. Mm. Which is quite interesting. The, the yes, last one to, yes. to leave us was 2012. Ooh, yeah, not, yeah, they did by like, God, but yeah, by a few months. By the way, the uh, the man, uh, the person who outlasted the rest of this cast, uh, Quincy M.A., by the way, did not realise that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Watched that a few times as a kid growing up. Uh, or as I like to call it, uh, this preview, well, the prequel to CSI. <laughs> it is great yeah because you see these as essentially young men kind of working 20s and 30s men and then seeing them in, in things later it is it is astounding really oh uh, we we were speaking about Gilbert Gottfried uh, off air ladies and gentlemen basically I sound like Gilbert Gottfried obviously yeah That's why we which I think you it. can all agree with uh, yeah so he and is it Jack Warden I think during number 7 were the only two people to appear in all three um, Problem Child films and I thought wow I haven't seen that film for 25 years, and I and I, I now recognise an old Jack Warden. Yeah, it was amazing. Mm, yeah, it's interesting when you recognise actors. I mean, I I knew who Henry Fonda was, but I don't think I'd actually seen any of his films knowingly. So it was interesting to see what was so big time about him because he's he was like Hollywood royalty essentially, wasn't he? He was he was yeah. The, I I, I was, I was trying, to, trying to figure out where I knew him. From I knew it was Henry Fonda, and I knew that was an important person. I don't think I've seen on Golden Pond, and I don't know which. It's possible that I'd seen him in a Hitchcock film, but it could have also just been. I remember him as being one of the big, you know, ten big black and white film stars, uh, and he's the is the for me when I first watched this film, he was the only recognisable face from this film. I'm going to tell you how the critics thought of it. Well, I'm going to tell you how one critic thought of it. We might as well call this uh, Roger Ebert Corner, frankly, because if he wrote. A review of the film we're looking at, that's the one we're going to read out. He, um, <laughs> Always comes first. Yeah, and I, I think I'm right in saying this was published in uh, 2002, this review, because obviously he wasn't reviewing at the time of the film. He called it a masterpiece of stylized realism, the style coming in the way of the photography and editing comment on the bare bones of the content. In its ingenuity, in the way it balances one piece of evidence against another that seems contradictory, 12 Angry Men is as meticulous as the summation of an Agatha Christie thriller. And I think that, I just thought, I read that, and I thought, well, I'm not going to look at any of the critics. That pretty much solves it. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to go to a break now, and when we come back, we're going to hear a few things. We're going to hear Hugh's rating, we're going to hear if he'd recommend it, and we're going to get the quiz. Welcome back. We're going to get into the Hugh's rating. So, Hugh, how many L train carriages out of ten would you give it? Um, for this film, I haven't really thought. Yeah, like a seven or an eight. 
maybe a seven or an eight. Yeah. Not an eight point five. No. I'm gonna go with mm. seven point five. Seven point five yeah. is a bit tepid, a bit lukewarm for a great film like this. No, I see. I think it, it is good, but there's a part of me that's starting to think it's one of those films that people like it because other people like it, and therefore you're kind of convinced that it it is a classic, and it is a classic. But oh dear, but I'm not oh dear. entirely sold that it's a stone cold ten out of ten or a nine out of ten. And more of the, I think this is where you get that realm of good, good writing for the stage crossover into the cinema, and because you don't get as much of it as you should, when you get a great example of it, everyone thinks it's amazing, and you get a lot of stage failures as well. You get a lot of, I think this film really works for that format, um, that's common in theatre, but in cinema it doesn't really work as well. I mean. You know, have you ever watched a Shakespeare adaptation on film? You must have come yeah. across them as a kid when you were at school, yeah. and you know, um, and some of them are not good. <laughs> they're boring. No, they're uninteresting. No, they're not. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never. I don't think I've properly enjoyed many Shakespeare adaptations to film and so on. I, I remember. I mean, and whereas something like Hamlet, when we did that A level, just reading it and really getting to see those lines and look at them properly and take my time over them really really enjoyed that it was the first time I've, I've really gotten into Shakespeare because it felt less like I was being forced to read it yeah but it all just get it just becomes a bit too poncy and a bit pretentious when somebody's performing it for the most part it feels a bit like oh now I'm really acting and this isn't this is great stuff and actually I don't enjoy the I don't enjoy the story or anything like that really but when I'm when I'm reading it which is not the obviously not the medium intended that's when I must enjoy it really yeah see I yeah, obviously, like yourself, you know, if you grow up in Britain, you, you do a lot of Shakespeare at school. Um, and I did English A level as well, so I did a lot of Shakespeare <laughs> over the years. Um, and the best film that I've seen was, the best one was uh, the, I think it was the, oh, what year was it? Maybe the 1994 version of Othello, I think it is, with Lawrence Fishburne in and um, what's his face? Oh, I can't remember his name now. Um, what's the actor? Kenneth Branagh. I don't, I don't Kenneth know Branagh. Yeah, with Kenneth Branagh, yeah. he plays Iago in it. Um, it's a safe bet. <laughs> I think he he didn't direct it. No, he was just in it. I can't remember the name of the director. You know, you can Google it. Um, he's a famous. Yeah. The director's no, actually, it was Kenneth Branagh who directed it. Yeah, I'm mixing up another Shakespeare play. He, te- he tends to. Yeah, but don't you think? Don't you think that it just so often comes across as we're making great cinema we're making this is great but actually a lot of it's supposed to be quite bawdy humor and all that sort of stuff and actually there's just a there's just an element of like well i think a great we're doing this to impress the other prefects i think any good adaptation of a shakespeare play that has legitimate bawdy humor in it needs to manage the tone of their film and accept that this bawdy humor is genuinely in this stuff and not to cover it over with that you know um soliloquy-esque kind of shakespearean you know like you said overacting that you get quite often and yeah i think when they handle the bawdy humor correctly it's done 
magnificently when they get it completely what do you think wrong. Of, what do you think of like modern adaptation, kind of Claire Danes, Romeo and Juliet? Um, sort of so, I, so I've watched a few kind of those versions where they've adapted adapted film uh, Shakespeare plays for film. So you've got obviously Romeo and Juliet's the famous example, the Baz Luhrmann 1997 version. That's a great film. Paul Rudd's in that as well. I think we were on about him earlier. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the character he's playing. Ageless man. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's probably Mercutio. I don't know. I can't. No, remember. he's I can't remember he's meant to be Juliet's arranged husband that her father oh, picks, yeah. and I can't remember the name of the character. Um, that's Fair a good enough, film. Right. That's a good adaptation because it's quite exciting. It's well filmed. Uh, like like I said, the Othello version from '94 is very good, or it might be '96, um, early mid '90s. Um, the Merchant of Venice with Ralph Fiennes in in '99. Sorry, in 2006 or seven with. Now it's got Robert Al Pacino. T- yeah, it's got Al Pacino in it, and he does have a New York accent in it. But <laughs> but to his credit, he plays it really well, and you kind of just roll with it. And that this he's from the Jewish quarter, and that they all kind of speak like this a little <laughs> like bit, like New Yorkers. Yeah, look, they're <laughs> all. Th- I mean, later. it's it's a weird lens, isn't it? Because essentially, it's an adaptation of what an English person in the 15, late, mid 15, sorry, late 1500s thought what Italians spoke like in Italy. <laughs> and then he's translating it into iambic pentameter in English. So it doesn't really matter what accent they have because <laughs> mm. at the end of the day, it's in English written about Italians. So surely he'd be writing, if he was being authentic, he'd <laughs> write in Italian. Uh, quite possibly. Uh, I, really I think my favourite Shakespeare adaptation is uh, Upstart Crow. The uh, Ben and David Mitchell sitcom yeah. on the BBC. It's really good. Don't think you know how this works. <laughs> <laughs> what was the point you were making about Shakespeare? Is that that? Well, it's, my point is it's supposed to be great, and therefore you just assume it's great or whatever. A little bit of that, and my other point was that not all plays translate into good films. So there are good examples of Shakespeare for plays that have been transferred to film. Um, but there's also, like, if you've seen the Macbeth version from a couple of years back with um, with Eva Green oh, and... Oh, is that with um, Yeah, Michael Fassbender. That's not Mario good. I, I started... I, I got about halfway through and turned it off. Um, I remember getting quite excited about that being in the cinema and then not going to it. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, because he's a good actor and he's very compelling to watch and it just didn't work, um, for me anyway. It's amazing how uncinematic so many adaptations of mythic things are as well on a sort of side note i got a lot into greek mythology last year with stephen fry's mythos and almost without exception there's one or two maybe exceptions all films about those things are all crap they're all like guy Ritchie type films that are like basically modern day gangster actors are playing those roles and it's, <laughs> and it's like it's all they're obsessed with like the gold and the glory of it and actually they're very human you know stories yeah. and they just make it this whole big poncy thing that's trying to be more important than it is uh, yeah <laughs> but, so the play adaptation thing yeah so essentially uh, yeah. like yeah. here's a great another great example is um um thingies uh the crucible by oh miller what's his first name john miller Roger? arthur miller alfred alfred, Mi- <laughs> alfred miller? <laughs> yeah is it alfred miller? arthur miller Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller, that's it. Oh, by the yeah, way, a correction from the last episode. It's not close, okay. close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. It's Close Encounters of the Third I was going to say kind. that. <laughs> I don't know why I said Fifth. I heard it back in the edit and was like, oh, I said Fifth there by accident. 
Yeah, Arthur yeah, Miller's gonna, um, mention Crucible. Time, you, were, you were really on a roll. Yeah, yeah thanks. For, you should have corrected me. <laughs> so yeah, Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, is an amazing. The Daniel Day-Lewis one. Yeah, no, the play itself is amazing. Oh, the play itself. I've read, I've read the book, and we, we read it for the book in year ten for in English, um, and you really get the sense of the tension and the you know a bit like actually quite a good comparison to Twelve Angry Men. You know, people protesting their innocence when they know they're innocent because they haven't done something and society saying that they have done it and how that played out, you know, and how that situation plays out and it obviously being a parable to the McCarthy witch hunts in uh, communist witch hunts in the fifties as well. So, you know, the, that's where, and then the film with Daniel Day Lewis in is pretty rubbish. Because <laughs> it, is, it is, yeah. It's not we an allegory. GCSE, and I watched it again. I watched it again last year. I tried to watch it again last year. So bored after twenty minutes, I just could not. I can yeah, quite personally. I can quite happily watch it because I've read the book and I understand everything in it. And I can, you know, I've done a well as much of a deep dive you can do at GCSE English. Oh, we uh, did it at GCSE as well. I remember enjoying the film when we did it at GCSE, but I, I yeah, I really could not get into it when I watched it last year. It's one of those films that kind of one of those plays that sits in the context of the period it's made in. And I think... Yeah, exactly. And so... What do we have now that's that, you know, maybe we've got like Muslims being witch-hunted a bit or something, but it's really not the same as no. the... It's not as as neat an allegory. I think the only thing you could, I would personally allegorise it towards these days, if that's even a word, um, or compare it with, is maybe the, um, the social media witch-hunts you get when somebody says something they no, shouldn't like have said. panic... Public yeah. shaming sort of thing. Yeah, where somebody says something stupid online and everyone condemns them. Um, I think a good example was that well, she was silly in what she said. There's no denying it. Um, where she made a joke about um, she was on her way to Africa and says, "Oh, yeah. I hope I don't get AIDS." And she went, "Joke, I'm white." Oh, just kidding, I'm white. Yeah. yeah. And actually, it was that was one of the most unfair because that's just a bit. I think she had 40 followers at the time, or 80 followers or something. Have you yeah. read the John Ronson book, um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed? I've listened to some of the podcasts that he wrote, uh, he did in response with, in accordance with the book. and yeah. It's really it's really worth pursuing, because yeah, there's a few like that who are just, someone has misunderstood it, and it just goes completely wrong. They lose their job, they lose their friendships, and it's their life's in tatters when actually people just didn't understand the joke. I mean, in that case, she's not... She's not being racist. She's sort of talking about racial inequality that exists that's not caused by her. Yeah. Caused by her. It's ridiculous. But at the same time, yeah, that's but that is one reading of it, isn't it? That's that's the point was, you know, that in maybe with that with the crucible is, you know, if you're if you truly believe in God and the devil, then yeah, then they have been possessed, so they deserve what they get. And some people will say, well, she was racist and deserved what she got. So maybe that's the only yeah, way. They're I can... idiots. Yeah, <laughs> they're of course. Idiots who don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I've... this is a whole other. This yeah. is a whole other thing that we've gotten away from the film with. But... As always. <laughs> As always, I think that's why our listeners uh, persist. <laughs> this, yeah. this peaked, yeah, I remember. We're nearly at the end of it. Yeah, so peaked. Would you like the quiz? <laughs> Let's go. Sort of trilled it about twenty minutes ago. So, question one of the quiz: dun, dun, dun. Which juror is the first to change his vote? Uh, juror, old man. Old man. Yeah. Very good. Juror number nine. Yeah. Question two: Joseph Sweeney's How... actor is called Joseph Sweeney. Yeah. Eighteen eighty-four, born. How many feet was the old man's hallway? How long was the old man's hallway in feet? I said 45. You're 40. so close. You're so close. No, nope, you're further away now. Oh. 
43. 43? Oh, I'm going to give you half a point for that because that was oh, very thanks. good. Um, to what animal... It was 40 seconds that it took for him to... for Fonda to yeah. walk it out. <laughs> That's the problem with that one. When, whenever someone's timing anything, it's like when a, when a detonator's, you know, counting down. It's never what it should be in the edit. And I, and I know that must be really difficult to get, but surely there's a better way of doing that and editing it because it was, it was supposed to be 31 seconds. Actually, it took 41 seconds on screen. What did you count around. it out? No, it was on IMDb. This uh, this fact, but you know, he says that was that was forty one seconds. Actually, on screen it was only thirty one seconds. That's I, right way around. Yeah, that's strange because it didn't feel. Yeah, I thought it didn't feel like forty one seconds, but perception yeah. of time is so difficult to. Uh... And I wonder if they could have put in more. They could have edited in more things, but it's one of those you just forgive it because who who in the cinema is in the nineteen fifties is timing that? Yeah, they didn't really have home video <laughs> at the time. I don't think. Uh, no. So yeah. No. <laughs> so anyway, um, question three. This is the one I had to hastily put in. Okay. Because you ruined my old question about Jura Twelve. Damn you. Um, to what animal does the foreman compare his be- compare his best little league player? He says like, oh yeah, this this guy he was so fast. He was fume. He was a something. He was a something. This kid. Oh good lordy. Um, I don't know, Sam. Um... Does he compare him to a, an ox? He does, yeah. Yeah, he does. <laughs> it's an ox. It's an yeah, ox. that was it. Yeah, because he's on a And bull. then another time, Jury number seven talks about we've got this bull. Uh, it also refers to a sort of cattle animal. Okay. Question four. What movies did Jury number four see at the cinema? Oh, damn it. I knew this <laughs> was going to come up. I should have checked. Um, oh. Mm. Uh, so he saw Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2 <laughs> <laughs> and you were not under any great emotional stress were you? Uh, I was then yeah something the air feature was a very clever whodunit yeah and something the, the amazing Miss Something or Other very good yeah so the, <laughs> the second feature the amazing Mrs. Bainbridge what that does he it. call it? The impressive Mrs. Bainbridge, I think it is. It's like that, yeah. The fantastic. fantastic. Uh, the first, the, the first feature was the Scarlet Circle. I, I really I feel bad that we don't have those days of double, double bill films every single time you go to the cinema. It's just the economic pressures of uh, multiplex life, mate. Yeah, you know, got to get the food in them. You're putting two films out that are an hour and a half each. You know, that's three hours. You, you do could, the math. You know, you'd be getting two uh, two audiences in in that time. It, it makes sense. I can't, I can't. It's a shame. Is Question it? five. What are the names of jury number eight and jury number nine? What are the names of jury <laughs> number eight and number nine? Yeah, so... What are the actual because characters' I, names? I was going to write this down names. did. So because I've gone for five questions, I've made some of them quite tricky. Okay. So oh, what? Wait, say, hang on, hang on, hang name? on, hang on. You've gone for five questions? Go for five questions. You, you only went for five questions. So, I, mean, you know, I can add two more if you want. I mean, I feel like I must insist you add in two more since I'm you always win. kept making a point of uh, you give 40% extra on the questions. <laughs> um, this time it's more quality. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> okay, 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 I can come up with another one. Do you know the names of the uh, bloody jurors? Eight and nine? Come on. Uh, Henry Fonda and Mr. Sweeney. <laughs> he says, I'm Davis, I'm McArdle. Davis yeah. and McArdle. So you didn't know that. 
Uh, question six. What's the... <laughs> you um, don't have to add in an extra question. <laughs> what's the advertising <laughs> slogan that Jerry number 12 I'm refusing to answer this with. question. I feel I'm doing <laughs> a rest. I'd like some counsel and a jury to uh, decide upon uh, the answer for this for me. Um, it's like Mr. Soap <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I can't remember. It's like the snap <laughs> crackles and pops or something. Yeah, yeah he yeah. basically invents the slogan for Rice Krispies there and then. He's, yeah. yeah. I mean, do you think they got pretty, any he's, a, he's an impressive man. So how many yeah, questions yeah, did great. I actually get right? I think I only got uh, like okay. two. I don't know. Some. some. <laughs> pretty consistent with your how many you get right. It's always some. So you got yeah. the first one right. The first changes vote. Yeah. You got half a point for question two, 43 feet. You got Ox right. I'm not giving you any points. Oh, you know, you, you get half a point for number four by saying the amazing Miss something. I mean, I don't think that counts, point. really. I don't think... So, I think, in all, you got some. Yeah, accurate. Tally those up. That's what I'd suggest. Fair so, enough. the big question is, would you recommend this film? Of course I would recommend this film. Um, Great, despite what I said on my rating. Um, it is... It's one of those, we've mentioned it before, there are some just essential films that you've got to watch. You know, this this is one of those. If you if you enjoy cinema, then you've got to you've got to watch this film. Um, well, going back to like to some of the episodes, I'm going to put this there with Princess Bride, Get Out, Twelve Angry Men. If you uh, let's say a friend of yours from work, they said, and they're like maybe they like films a lot, and they said, "Can you recommend me a film? Which of those three films would you give them?" It always depends who it is, doesn't it? I mean, some people, you know, really enjoy cinema. Let's say it was me. Let's say it was me and I hadn't seen any of those. Of those films? So of all the films you've recommended to me are just those? Just just those three. Princess Bride, Get Out and 12 Angry Men. I'd recommend The Princess Bride 2 first. Right, interesting. Why is that? uh, Because I know the humour of the film would... um, You'd enjoy that and you'd enjoy that kind of, um, you know... Oh, what's it called? Like satirical aspect of uh, and deconstruction of a genre. I think you'd find it funny. Fair enough. I'm I'm happy with that. Princess Bride's great film. And then so, I'd recommend this, and then get out. Then this, then get out. Right. Okay. Yes, yeah. that, that is intriguing. Well, either way, you've liked the film. I'm happy about that. I I, I knew this was fairly safe that you would like it, um, and I knew you would nitpick it because that's your way when it comes to good films, but. But, you know, I don't think there's too much wrong with it. I mean, I'd be worried when I don't pick films. <laughs> yeah, it means that you've lost all critical faculties. Um, more um, than that, I just didn't enjoy the film. <laughs> right, yeah. No, that's good. So it's a good sign that you... I mean, uh, I lost my critical faculties many years ago. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good facsimile. What are we going to watch next week, Hugh? Right, so in a... Uh, a change to our usual programming, we're going to have mm. a special spooky Halloween themed episode where we're not going to just do Ooh, I'm creeped out by the format change oh dear I mean I can tell the oh, the fear in your in your voice there was palpable yes so <laughs> uh, usually as you know we do one film per week but this next week coming up we're going to do wait for it drum roll please Sam I mean that sounds like one of those things that you know a door stopper you know when you flick a door stopper really fast and it's, you know, springy ones. it was just my tongue against the roof of my mouth fair enough I mean you need to invest in some drums um, <laughs> we're going to do the film from this year so we're going to do a contemporary film uh, Midsummer. it's called um, and because yes. I haven't seen that film and Sam hasn't seen that film I mean who who could recommend this film to us Sam we're going to have to employ somebody who really knows horror films 
who do we know who knows horror films that we've had on this well, podcast? Well, my brother before? Joe Blakely, of course. Uh, but other than that, <laughs> Michael Nardelli. Uh, other than that, Ben Dawson, my friend Ben Dawson. Uh, he's he's coming on again uh, next time. We've got a double header. We've got Midsummer. That's the one that uh, Hugh is ostensibly recommending, but hasn't actually seen it. And we've also got What We Do in the Shadows, um, which I have seen and I'm recommending to Hugh. Ben's seen both. Oh no, he hasn't. Yeah. Anyway, no. you'll find out next week. So We've it's basically going to be a triumvirate of recommendations, isn't it? It's going to be. A... It's a weird love triangle of recommendations. Yeah. So yeah, that's, me and Ben are going to watch what we the Taika Waititi directed, what we do in the shadows, after because um, I actually hadn't seen it, despite seeing Hunt for the Wilder People first. So I'm looking mm. forward to getting into that. I'm also looking forward to watching a bang up to date film in Midsummer. What about you, Sam? Are you looking forward to seeing Midsummer? I am, yeah, I'm intrigued. I don't really know much about it. I think there's, it's a horror, and um, I think that woman's in it. Uh, Alison thing. No, or Tony Collette or someone. Yeah, it is Tony <laughs> uh, Collette, isn't it? It's a, Tony Collette. Um, and uh, yeah, what do you know about what we do in the shadows? Um, well, I know it's directed by Taika Waititi, and he's in it, and it's about, I think, a group of vampires in Australia or New Zealand trying to just fit into society, but they're hundreds of years old, and they don't know how to do that. <laughs> so um, I think that's the, the humour in it. So yeah, we've got, I don't know how scary Midsummer is, so we're going to try and enjoy a bit of lightheartedness and a bit of horror. Um, yeah, a nice uh, yeah light and dark. In I'm looking. There. I'm so, looking forward to yeah. hearing what Ben has to say about um, about what we do in the shadows and Midsummer. I always like to hear, yeah, especially it's in his horror. favorite genre. Yeah, he knows he knows he knows horror. So I, I'm looking forward to getting him back on, and I'm sure our listeners are as well. Um, well, Hugh, it's been fun. I'm glad you've got to see this film. I mean, you had 62 years. Um, but <laughs> yeah. uh, if the audience wants to get in touch and tell us how much they love the film. How can they do it? So what they need to do is they need to commit a crime, make sure I'm selected <laughs> as a member of the jury. Then when we're debating their guilt of said crime or not, preferably make sure it's murder so it's you know real height and drama at the time. What they need to do, instead of sneaking a knife into the jury room, they need to sneak in an email uh, and then about you know whatever they want to discuss, whether this film or other films or um, just things in general we're quite happy we've up and suggestions if they go into all that if they go into all that effort why an email why not a note yeah oh old school yeah hand, a lovely handwritten note oh that would be you know people don't write letters to one another anymore um <laughs> but failing that if you don't have the time to plan a crime and try and get off get away with it uh, you can always email us at please watch this dot pod at gmail.com sam where can they find us on the internet on the internet you can find us on twitter at please watch pod we're also on Facebook. Please watch this. And uh, where can they uh, hear us, Sam? They can hear us on all kinds of platforms. If um, you have a preferred platform that we're not on, please let us know, and we'll try to sort that out. But we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on Castbox. We're on uh, Spotify. Although we're still not searchable properly at this point, so I'm looking into that. We're on all the things. Great stuff. Well, it's been emotional. It has. It has. I'll see you all next week. I love you guys. See you later. Bye. Bye.